Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 27. I mentioned in the last episode that chapter 26 is kind of like an apologue, and chapter 27 is kind of like an appendix. Some say that it was added later. Others say that it was given at the same time as the first 26 chapters, but is presented here because it stands outside the general flow of the main concerns. The content of the chapter has to do with vows and tithes, by means of which the sanctuary complex was funded and maintained. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels, and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver, and for a female the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels, and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. This section of the text seems very foreign to the modern day reader. We wonder what it means to give yourself as a votive offering to the Lord. What, what does that mean? And, and, and why are certain people worth more than other people? I thought we were all created in the image and likeness of God. So what in the world's going on here? It might be helpful to begin with a story. Stories are often more accessible than laws. Remember, if you can, the story of Hannah praying in the tabernacle as recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, as you may recall, was barren and she desperately wanted to have a child. So she promised God, she made a vow that if the Lord blessed her with a child, she would dedicate him to the service of the tabernacle. The Lord answered her prayer and Hannah kept her side of the bargain. When the child was weaned, she brought him to the tabernacle of the Lord at Shiloh and Samuel served the Lord in the tabernacle and as a prophet all the days of his life in Israel. So that's the story that will perhaps help us wrap our heads around the meaning and the purpose of these laws. In times of severe distress, or as an expression of extreme gratitude, people would make vows. And this practice came to be regulated through legislation such as this. A person could come and either give themselves in personal service to the tabernacle or pay the equivalent price in silver. Hebrew scholar Baruch Levine puts it this way. He says, Pledging the equivalent of one's life according to a scale established by the priesthood served two ends. 
the spirit of the ancient tradition was satisfied, and in practical terms, the sanctuary received necessary funds. Close quote. We see the basic spirit of this ritual preserved in Paul's counsel to the Romans in Romans 12.1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So people who have been greatly blessed desire some way to respond. They want to worship with their whole lives. And this legislation in Leviticus 27 offers them a way to do so. Now, as for the various valuations, most scholars understand them to be based upon potential earning power, much like our modern-day insurance evaluations. So this is not a commentary upon people's ultimate worth before God. It is simply a system of estimated monetary equivalence. Verse 9. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. The basic idea here is fairly straightforward, though there is some confusion around some of the finer details. In general, verses 9 to 13 deal with the protocols associated with the vowing of an animal. A person might make a vow. Oh, Lord, if you cause me to recover from this illness, I will give to you one of my finest oxen. Or, oh, Lord, because you've given me such a fine family, I will give to you my choicest lamb. Regardless of the reason or occasion, there's a certain protocol to be observed. And here is where we run into a bit of confusion. Verse 10 seems to indicate that what is offered is not to be exchanged or redeemed. But then verse 13 says that if he does want to redeem it, he must add 20% to the estimated value. Probably the best way to handle this would be to understand verses 9 to 10 as dealing in the matter of clean animals. That is to say, animals that could be used in the sacrificial system. If you vowed a lamb, then you understood that the lamb would be sacrificed. So don't give it if you want to get it back. Under this approach, verses 11 to 13 are understood as dealing with unclean animals, an animal that is not used for sacrifice. Here you could give it and then redeem it, just like you might do with a person. The priest estimated the value and you bought it back at 120% as a donation to the sanctuary. So a person might say, Lord, you have prospered me such that I'm able to afford many donkeys. Therefore, I offer to you my best donkey as a sign of gratitude. But since donkeys aren't used for sacrifice, you buy it back at 120% of market value as a contribution to the sanctuary. Does that make sense? This is a way of worshiping that was also a way of raising funds for the tabernacle service. Here it should be noted that all such offerings were voluntary. So this is not a way of exploiting the poor worshiper. This was completely voluntary. And as we saw in verse 8, the pricing scale was actually adjustable to accommodate worshipers of lesser means. That's important for us to notice as well. 
Verses 14 to 24 deal with vows relating to houses and lands. Here again, you will see the principle of buying it back at 120% of market value. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. So here we have a process for donating houses and properties, some of which may be bought back at 120% of value, and some of which may be given over as permanent endowments. In verses 22 to 23, we see that temporary gifts of land were valued in terms of their nearness to the year of Jubilee. If the year of Jubilee were only three years away, at which point the land would return to the original owner, then obviously it was less valuable than if it was vowed the year after the year of Jubilee. Again, we're reminded that land was understood as ultimately owned by God, and the people were more tenants than owners. And that perspective is factored into these various protocols. Verse 25. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty garahs shall make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or... If it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. Here we have some miscellaneous guidelines and standards. The agreed-upon standard for all these transactions will be the sanctuary shekel. Coinage, of course, could fluctuate wildly in terms of purity and quality, so this is just a practical measure. You have to agree on what constitutes a shekel. So it will be the sanctuary version of the shekel, which is measured at 20 garahs. In verse 26, there is a reminder that we can't vow to God what already belonged to God. Vows are over and above offerings. So you can't steal from your tithe in order to make an offering. That's the idea. The firstborn of clean animals already belonged to God. And there was already a standard process for redeeming those animals. So you can't rob Peter to pay Paul, as Grandma used to say. 
In today's terms, we might say, if you have already covenanted in your heart to give 10% of your income to the Lord as your regular weekly offering, and let's say that represents $10,000 a year just for the sake of simplicity in this illustration, then you can't take $2,000 from that agreed upon $10,000 and consider it a special Christmas offering or a special offering for the missionary. It's not a special offering. It's your regular offering. It's what you've covenanted to give to the Lord. If you want to make a special offering, then it needs to be on top of the already promised 10%. Does that make sense? That is precisely what is being stipulated here. Verse 28. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind, shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. Again, sometimes a story is helpful in terms of illustrating a law. Perhaps you remember the story of Achan. Achan took some of the treasure from the city of Jericho, all of which had been placed under the ban. It was declared harem, devoted to destruction. But Achan stole a bunch of of articles and hid them under his tent. Well, this law is saying that you can't steal things and then offer them to God as part of a vow. That's not a thing. But you can imagine a person thinking that. I'll steal a few things from Jericho and then offer the choicest items to God as a votive offering and keep the rest of the treasure for myself. No, God does not deal in stolen property. That's the idea here. And anything that is supposed to be devoted to destruction is supposed to be devoted to destruction. You can't take from that pot and put it in the offering pot. That's that's not how this works. Verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy, it shall not be redeemed. The tithe of the harvest of the land in terms of crops and animals was understood as the rent that was owed by the tenants to the ultimate owner of the land, who was, of course, God. If, however, for some reason, it was thought useful or advantageous to buy back the animals or grain that was owed, to give money instead of stock, then it could be redeemed at 120% of declared value. This was to be done in a fair and regulated manner under the supervision of the priesthood. Verse 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. As stated during the introduction to this episode, chapter 27 is generally understood as a sort of appendix to the book of Leviticus as a whole. And yet its theme and placement serves a distinct rhetorical function. Gordon Wenham is very helpful here. He says this chapter, in effect, recapitulates and reminds us of the great themes that have engaged our attention in the rest of the book. Leviticus 27 points out that holiness is more than a matter of divine call and correct ritual. Its attainment 
requires the total consecration of a man's life to God's service. It involves giving yourself, your family, and all your possessions to God, closed quote. Again, that is no more and no less than is commended by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Old Testament and new. Spiritual worship is whole life worship in response to the grace and mercy of our covenant-keeping Lord. It is a life of holiness, service, charity, justice, community, and witness, all fueled and empowered by the gifts and the blessings that he bestows. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. The best way to manage all the episodes and resources that we have here at Into the Word is probably to download the app. You can find that wherever it is you find your apps. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. As always, after a series like this, I'll attempt to release some excursies episodes where we'll dig a little deeper into some of the themes and issues we encountered along the way. It'd be great for you to connect with us on Facebook as well. We have a growing community of Bible readers, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Once again, just type into the word into the search bar. Love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.